Hi everyone and welcome back to the Parma podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Uh, welcome back to the show. Really great to have you all with us here again. And um, today I am delighted to welcome a new guest. Um, this is somebody I've been wanting to have on the show for years, really. Um, and delighted to say we finally got them on. Um, so yeah, welcome to the show, uh, Tori Glass. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's it's fantastic uh, that you're here. Um, like like I said, I followed your work for quite quite a while, and we followed each other on Twitter and things, and interacted a lot there. And it just never got around to asking you um, asking you on for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but um, but yeah. So um, but yeah, um, Tori does a lot of anti-racist work. Um, she did. Um, they have a lot of they do this thing called white homework which i subscribe to and all people should subscribe to by the way uh so that's your page that's your is that your patreon thing yeah yeah it's set up yeah set up through patreon yeah 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 all white people who need to do uh, anti-racist work should sign up for that i highly recommend it um well that's all white people by the way um <laughs> everyone <laughs> we're going to talk about this today so tell us just tell us a bit of um what you do and your, and your story yeah absolutely um so i grew up um on the west coast of the u.s in portland oregon and um it's a very white city and so yeah there were not a lot of people who looked like me like i didn't really see people who looked like me around um and that always kind of bugged me because what I did notice as a kid was that when I would see someone on the street who was like very clearly experiencing some sort of crisis, it was like disproportionately a black person or a person of color. And it's like, how come I don't really ever see black people around? Like, but, you know, when somebody is experiencing a crisis or like clearly in need of support, that person is way more. And like, this is, I, I, you know, I didn't have language for this. It was just something that I noticed. Like I was a little, little kid. So, um, and you know, I grew up really poor too. So I was just like, I don't, I don't like how this is playing out. Like something seems very wrong here. And I'm, um, I've always been very justice oriented, um, much to the chagrin of the adults who were in charge of my life as a kid. So uh, that wasn't, that wasn't really exciting. It's not, yeah. Kids who think that things should be just and fair, or at least an attempt should be made to be just and fair. Um, authoritarian adults don't like that. So yeah. <laughs> that, I, that didn't work out great for me as a kid. It's working out a little better now. But so that was kind of that was kind of my childhood. And that was something that really oriented me towards justice and wanting to try to like find solutions for problems. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm like weirdly optimistic and I'm just like very committed to the idea that there are pretty great solutions for most problems. And culturally, I think we're just sort of taught to either like just accept the status quo, um, right? Like not rock the boat. Or we're taught that like 
well, there's nothing, there's nothing that can be done. So this isn't, this isn't like a worthwhile way to spend our time or energy. Right. Um, and you know, very, very like victim blamey, like, you know, obviously us is all like bootstraps and like individualism and it's confusing and depressing, but that's, uh, that's where we are currently. So (laughs) yeah, that was, um, that was sort of like childhood. And then I, um, how I got into the work that I was doing now. Oh, let's see. When was this? So 2016, I, yeah, 2016, I got a job working in a neuroscience lab at a university here in Portland. Um, that was a really incredible experience. And um, what I was actually doing in the lab was um, recruitment for underrepresented minorities to bring them to the university because again, Portland is really, really white. And, um, you know, the school probably wasn't on the radar for a lot of, of, you know, postdocs of color specifically. So my boss was very committed to this idea of, we need to, you know, make sure that we're bringing people in and like giving them support that they need to like be able to stay afloat because this is like a really difficult process. And, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult when you have support and when you have family members who have gone through like, you know, an extra like four to eight years of university. Um, so if you don't know anyone who's ever done this before, it can feel really disorienting. So that was kind of what I was in charge of. We would have, we had a group of folks who kind of came from like all over the U S and all over the world. And, um, they kind of just were able to like, we were, my job was to sort of create community for, for these folks and to make sure they had support and mentorship and, you know, knew their way around town and like had fun places to go. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we would do, you know, we try to do like monthly events, just like social stuff so that people could, you know, get out of the house, get out of the lab um, and, you know, spend time together and, you know, build community uh, with folks who had very similar experiences, very similar backgrounds. So in that lab, though, there was a lot of work being done on the developing brain. So the primary grants that were funding the lab were for um, ADHD, studying ADHD and autism in the developing brain. So a lot of the research subjects that would come in were maybe all, initially all of the research subjects that would come in were, were kids and um, kids who'd been diagnosed with ADHD or autism or both. Right. And so that was a lot of research that was being done in terms of like looking at brain structures and the differences or similarities between uh, brain structures of like neurotypical kids and kids with ADHD or autism. And um, so that was really incredible, kind of like learning how brain development works, right? Yeah, Uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And then on top of, on top of that, there was a lot of other, it was a huge lab and there was a lot of other research going on around like 
race and implicit bias around like maternal trauma and healthcare outcomes for kids um, and, or like mental health outcomes for kids. And so there was all of this incredible research being done like all around me. And we had all of these um, researchers and professors and doctors come to the university, like from all over the world um, to like give talks. And it was just like, you could just walk in and like attend a talk from like a top neuroscientist or neurosurgeon. Um, wow. That must've been awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was absolutely, it was absolutely incredible. So they'd come in, they'd talk about their research and um, whatever, whatever they're working on, whatever they'd recently published. It was really, really incredible because it was kind of like a front row seat to what was happening in, in neuroscience. And so in this environment, I'm also, uh, tweeting a lot. Um, so I was, <laughs> um, this, I was like in the process of like leaving, leaving church and realizing that like white evangelicals in the U S were very, like, they're just very anti-black. Like that's just all there is to it. Right. And so, um, I'm sort of like processing that and working through like going back through everything that I was taught, right? In in history about like this country and about our values, our ostensible values. <laughs> Which is like kind of a joke now. But um I'm like going back through everything and and like applying this like new lens to it, right? Of of not being satisfied with this very whitewashed narrative and like going and like hunting down information that was excluded, like from our history books. Right. And, um, so I'm doing that and I'm talking about all of this stuff sort of all at the same time. Right. So it's like all this neuroscience and anti-racism stuff, um, going back and like trying to integrate like black history and Chinese history and indigenous history into like what I was taught, which was none of that. Um, and so I'm talking about all of this online kind of all the time and through this process, I, people started asking me questions, right? Like I, I did really try to be, approachable for the most part, you know, if somebody was, if somebody was engaging in good faith. Um, and yeah, so people started asking me questions. People started going, okay, but you know, so what, what do I do? Um, oh my gosh, sorry. People started asking like, okay, so what do, what do I do about racism? And I, my response was always like, well, I don't, I don't know you personally, so I don't actually know. <laughs> what you do, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, if, if like one of my best friends asks me like, okay, what should I do about racism? That's a pretty easy question to answer. Cause it's like, I know where, you know, I know where you went to school. I know where your parents live. I know like what your income is ish. Right. And like how much flexibility you have, how much access you have, um, how much margin you have in your life. And so I can help you come up with a plan of like, okay, so here's some things like, maybe consider spending, I don't know, less on X and like donating that, or maybe consider like 
carving out some time every week or every other week to go and volunteer somewhere. Um, you know, or like consider like what, consider what you're going to do if you like get an inheritance from a parent or a grandparent who passes away. Um, like bringing anti-racism into those conversations um, has been really important to me. But again, I was in a position where I couldn't, I couldn't just tell someone, I, I can't just go out and be like, everybody needs to be like donating 10% of their income to yeah. some anti-racist cause. Right. That's not, that's not fair. That's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, some people can do that. Some people can't. A lot of people should be doing way more than that because they have disposable income, <laughs> you know, yeah, so it's like a whole, it's a whole spectrum, right. Of, of where, you know, where people are and, um, what they have access to their current like position in life and, and life circumstances. And I have found, you know, especially with like leaving evangelicalism, um, that being prescriptive is pretty crummy. Like it's not a great way to kind of engage with people of like, here's this just like blanket statement. Everyone has to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so with that in mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I need to like create some tools for people so that they can go and figure out what they need to be doing. Um, because I can't, you know, I don't have time to like get on the phone and like talk to everyone that asks me a question for like an hour and go, okay, like, you know, what's your background? Like wh- what industry are you in? You know, what are things that you can do for the people that, that you work with already for your neighbors? Um, so I was like, I need to create some tools to sort of help people <laughs> who are asking these questions and want to figure this stuff out. But, um, don't, you know, people, I'm like, I don't, I don't have time to just like sit down and like chat with every, every single person on Twitter who asked me a question. Like I can't even keep up with my mentions. Right. So (laughs) it's, you know, that was a lot. So I, what I did was I ended up creating white homework. Um, and that is basically like a personal anti-racism sort of assessment tool that people can use, um, to kind of examine their own history background, um, culture, the environment that they were raised in, um, you know, where you, where you work, where you spend time, what, like where you get your information, your entertainment, like everything, um, to sort of give people their own, their own way of doing the work, doing analysis, like asking, okay, where can I, like, where can I do more? Right. Like, what am I, what are, what are opportunities that I have in my life right now that I'm not taking full advantage of (sighs) things like that. Um, so with that, with the little like white homework modules that I made available to people, um, I also started white homework as a podcast, um, to sort of talk about a lot of these issues that maybe, maybe like a online course module situation isn't super appropriate for, right? Like, I mean, racism in the U.S. in in healthcare and policing and housing and all of the things, right? Um, some of that isn't like something you can just sort of hand to somebody. <laughs> Be like, hey, do like yeah. do your white homework on like racism and healthcare. Like, if you're not in healthcare, 
it, you need to know this information, but uh, there's not a lot you could probably do about it. Um, so giving people information in a way that was accessible and honestly, like kind of snarky a lot of the time <laughs> has been um, the way that I've I've kind of chosen to like use the information and the position and the access that I had to, I mean, hopefully make life better materially for people. And the reason that I started the podcast was so that I could start this Patreon that I have, the White Homework Patreon, which is set up to like, uh, to help people of color, people from marginalized communities in, um, pay rent every month. So essentially like having, having some families, um, just giving families a year off of having to pay rent because again, as someone who grew up really poor, uh, I know what a big deal it is, you know, to like, just to have like one month off of paying rent, never mind like a year. So that was something that I was really passionate about because it was like, this is my own lived experience. I know that this makes a huge a huge material difference, like a huge impact in that way, but also like the mental and emotional well-being of of the families that we support, like skyrockets, which is incredible. And um, you know, because they're able to, they don't have to worry about like, oh, if the car breaks down, I'm not going to be able to pay to fix it. Like, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't have an extra hundred bucks every week or two for therapy for myself and my kid. Um, all of these little things that like are nice to have, but like in, in, in our country, at least are considered like, meh, like if you don't, if you don't have that, like that's your problem, I guess. Um, so providing that support for people has made a really big difference. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of data coming out to sort of support the concept of, I mean, essentially like universal basic income and the ways that that has like a really net positive effect on people's lives. And also like, sorry to be like all capitalists for a second, cause it's not actually what I think, but like people are actually more productive, <laughs> you know, like they're, it's like, it's easier to find a job if you're not freaking out about how you're going to pay your rent. Right. Cause like in the U S at least finding a job is a full-time job in and of itself. Um, you know, are people are able to take care of themselves, right. So that are getting enough sleep and, um, all of things sort of snowball and like can really drastically improve somebody's quality of life with like, honestly, not that much money. Um, so that is, that's where I am currently. That's what I'm working on. Um, I have some like I have some new projects that I am working on right now, but oh, let's say, yeah, that's that's like the medium length version of the story. No, that's really great. I yeah, I'm. I mean, I mean, you know, obviously, I've been aware of your work for a while. I didn't know the bit. I didn't know the stuff before. I didn't know you worked in a lab and neuro all the neuroscience stuff because I'm. I'm fascinated by all that stuff. Like I'm really interested in all that. If it's become part of my spiritual journey, pretty much yeah. like learning about how the body works and the brain works and all of that. Like it's mm-hmm. fascinating. So um, that's interesting as well. So, but yeah, I know. Um, and I've seen you on Twitter and, you know, and you, 
you really do a lot of great a great stuff and have supported a lot of people so it's really great work that you do um one of the things that i wanted to talk about which i think is i don't think you can ever talk about it enough right um which i've learned because i'm i'm a subscriber to white homework so um one of the things that i've learned about a lot is the concept of whiteness all right now a lot of people may not may not know what this what this means right or may have a different misunderstanding of what it means um especially white people might not understand it um so i still might be good to explore that today um so um and especially because how it doesn't just damage people of color or black people but it also color also damages white people so um so yeah just tell us a bit about whiteness so people who maybe aren't familiar with it or haven't heard of it or don't understand it maybe yeah absolutely um so people um, people tend to get a little bit nervous when you talk about whiteness um which is i guess fair right um because yeah there's like there's not a lot of understanding about it it's not something that's you're being taught like in school like if you if you go to university like you'll learn about it but um like kind of like primary school in the US like nobody's talking about this and so it gets really confusing because essentially what what people here are told is like just treat everyone the same and like don't see their race or their color or their background or whatever um and so then kind of bringing in this concept of of whiteness like as a construct and as a system that excuse me as a system that works to protect certain people at the expense of other people that's sort of like the analysis that i kind of tried to bring to it and i also try to like again be cognizant of the fact that uh this can be a really activating topic subject for people. Um, and right. Like nervous systems are not rational. And so having these conversations can be, can be really, can be really hard. And I, you know, when I'm leading like anti-racism training, um, for folks, again, it's like, it's overwhelmingly white folks. And this is like, like I always start out with, with this, (laughs) like I always start out with this idea of like, Okay, so your your nervous system, it's very normal if you have like a nervous system response to this discussion, right? Because it can be a lot for you when you uh, made it to adulthood, never having learned any of this stuff, and then you sort of get blindsided by it um, as an adult, uh, and it really is sort of counter to the things that you were told, both like explicitly and and just through osmosis like culturally um that can be again like really difficult for people but the way that the way that i explain like whiteness versus white people right like whiteness all race is a construct um and whiteness is a construct that was created invented i guess i should use the term invented i like that word for this whiteness was invented to be a like moral justification for like the oppression of other people um and you know a religious justification originally for the oppression of other people and so there are you know 
because of all this colonization that was going on in like the 15th and 16th centuries originally, which is when, when the concept of whiteness sort of originated, um, there was all like, there was all of this theology being done like in the Catholic church, especially around like white superiority, right. That like God had actually given the entire planet to like European men and everyone else was supposed to be like subordinate to them. And, um, you know, they, again, like race did not exist when the, when the Bible was written, like the new Testament or like the Hebrew Bible, obviously like that was that construct didn't exist at the time, but they somehow managed to like make the Bible support this, this theology of domination and subjugation. So again, like whiteness isn't, isn't a real thing in terms of like a physical thing that exists in your body. If you're like a white person, like that's not how it works. Um, it is a social construct. And so I, the pushback that people think they're being so smart, (laughs) they're always like, people are always saying, well, like race isn't a real, race isn't biologically real. So like whiteness can't be a thing. Like blackness can't be a thing. And my response to that is always, well, dollar bills aren't worth anything, (laughs) but we have all agreed that like, they work in a certain way. And in the US, if you don't have them, you don't get to eat. So like something doesn't have to be real to have a life or death impact. And um, that's a little bit scary, honestly, or depressing or something. Um, yeah, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of the above. So that's sort of how I explain this this idea right of 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 racial superiority and like purity and like this god-given right to rule right to be in charge of other people um because being white is like proof of your worthiness i guess or something and um so as this as you're like working through this system the way that it plays out is really especially now <laughs> the way that it plays out is like really subversive. Like it's almost all of it is like under the surface. Um, it's racism ultimately is very rarely, you know, in 2023 is actually very rarely like this explicit, um, statement, right? Like explicit violence where somebody like writes a manifesto and is like, I hate X, Y, or Z people. And so I'm going to kill them. That does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but like the overwhelming majority of the impact that, that, racism has isn't that right it's this idea that white people have internalized again like from from culture from society from history um or like from the history that we're taught that you know white people just just know better like they're just even if it's a little bit right the white people are maybe a little bit more objective or a little bit more neutral or um, a little bit more rational, reasonable, like don't get upset. We just keep everything like very calm and like, you shouldn't get upset either. Cause like, look at me, I'm not upset. Um, right. And so it's this weaponization of people's, of the nervous systems of people of color ultimately, um, because you're not allowed to have a, an emotional reaction to injustice right? Like that is considered irrational. And, um, 
I think that I think that the way that this plays out, I feel one of the ways that this plays out in um, in the U.S. is the response to uh, police executing people on the side of the street. Um, that yeah, you're supposed to like police can can be violent because they felt some sort of a way like. I was having a bad day or I got a, got in a fight with my girlfriend or something. And so, you know, and like now, now, so now somebody's murdered and I just, that's the thing that I get to do, but you can't, you can't have a violent reaction to that because that's like uncivilized or something. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, and especially like, especially the thing, the thing here very much like property damage. Like you can't, you can't like hurt some, you can't hurt property because like somebody was killed and it's like, okay, so we really, you really care about like this building more than you do like this individual and their family and like their parents and their kids and like their siblings and their friends and their, like really like this window is more important than all of that. Like, okay. Okay. So I think that that's sort of the the kind of the gist of how it works, right? Is it's like just this internalized idea that it's never interrogated, um, right? That we are taught not to, it's not like we're not taught anything. Like we're taught not to interrogate this concept. Um, because once you examine it, it's, it's not valid, <laughs> right? Like, it's made it like you can argue that it is valid from like the perspective of explicit subjugation, but it is not a morally valid argument. Like there is no way to make it a morally valid argument. And so, you know, again, like we don't, we don't examine this, this construct. Um, and that is, you know, that leads to all kinds of really horrific outcomes for people of color, for immigrants. Um, and like the ways, the ways that this plays out again, it's just, you know, it's might not seem like a big deal. Right. But when you have a, when you have a white person who's like unilaterally deciding, like, I don't believe my black patient is telling me the truth. I think they're exaggerating because they want drugs. Um, stuff like that, again, like that has like a life or death impact, right? Yep. Because it's like, well, I'm going to walk away from my responsibility here because I don't believe you because you were not a trustworthy person. Um, so that's really, I feel like, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is accurate, but it's something I've been thinking about today actually um that like the the main currency of whiteness is like this credibility or trustworthiness right that like you can default to white people being trustworthy you can default to white people being credible um you can't you can't default to like a black person being credible like that's that's not realistic right and so that's really the way that that plays out and it's again it's not it's not call that's not called racism right like that's just called people are just like oh i'm just i'm just being smart i'm just taking precautions i'm just you know whatever something happened or i saw something on tv and so now i'm going to just be you know i'm just being less likely i'm just being less trusting because 
I saw something somewhere or I had some experience and that is justification for treating all people who look a certain way as yeah, like less trustworthy um and unable to uh unable to like I don't want to say factually, that's not quite the word I'm looking for, but unable to give like an honest um explanation of their lived experience, right? And, you know, in the US, this, I I think this, this is, I don't know, I have, I'm not sure if I've even heard anybody say this, but I think that it really goes back to um, in the, in the US, and then like before that, in the colonies, like um, a black person couldn't testify on their own behalf in courts, they had to have a white person vouch for them. And I think that that idea is like, really pervasive still. Um, but again, it's like, it's not explicit, so it's not examined, but you can, you can see that it's still happening because you can look at the data and go like, the outcomes here are not similar. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that that's really like kind of like the function and like the shape of whiteness, because it can be really, really hard to, nail it down right it's very um it's very slippery <laughs> like it's very slick <laughs> um and it just sort of like evolves right with with time and so try like that makes it incredibly hard to try and i'm not work against sounds bad because white people have a hard time distinguishing between whiteness and themselves like when you say something bad about whiteness, when you say like whiteness is inherently oppressive, they think that that's a personal statement about them and their character. Um, because again, nobody's doing any critical examination of this stuff. So um, it gets really sticky for people when it's like, oh yeah, like whiteness exists in these certain ways and functions in these certain ways. And it's very much like a self reinforcing system right? Because if you do not behave adequately, like to the standard of whiteness, but you are someone who would be considered white, like that is, that is like a betrayal of whatever. I don't, I like, it's hard to even explain. It's like, that's, that's like somehow a betrayal of like your culture or your people. And like whiteness is not a culture or a people, but gets conflated with those things. Um, or is like evidence that you also are untrustworthy and unobjective and not like a reliable narrator about your own experiences. So again, like it really is, it can be really hard to like nail down. And I think that the easiest, sometimes the easiest thing to see is like the effects of it, like the wake or the shadow of whiteness, right? Because it does have an impact, has a measurable impact. And you can't do anything about that until you name it, right? And identify it. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and we definitely see that play out here as well in the UK. Um, especially especially um, under the government that we've had in the last, the last, three, the last few years, quite a, quite a long time now, where... It's been veering off over to the right a lot more, and you know, and, and things like Brexit and um, and this kind of immigrant this immigration issue 
um, allegedly it's an issue um, that, 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 that that's that's here in the UK and like you know and it's always been there it's like been an undercurrent even when we had a really progressive government there was always this little undercurrent of like like foreigners taking our jobs and all this kind of thing right and it was always white people that said this always um and um and even now you've got like some people like saying um oh we're taking so many immigrants like you know they're take they're, they're sucking our economy dry and i'm like do you know anything like like you think that's the reason our economy's in trouble and not this toxic brexit that you voted for you know like um you know and it's oh, and i remember actually after the brexit vote the day after like the weeks after hate crime increased exponentially you were having people mocking europeans who were working in restaurants like saying, oh, yeah. you haven't got long then, have you? Like, yeah, this kind of thing. I had friends from Europe who were just emotional wrecks because they were they were afraid of being thrown out of the country and they were afraid of getting abused and stuff. And that is, and then like, that's when I realised, I think, when, like, oh, this has always been here, hasn't it? They've just been waiting for permission, mm-hmm. you know? And um, so there's definitely that that undercurrent of of, of whiteness here. Um, even in working class communities as well, like, um, you know, and yeah, um, yeah, it's not comfortable to, to hear, but it, but it, but it, but we need to, we need to talk about it. Uh, like you say, um, like I'm a white, I'm a white male European, <laughs> um, you know, it's my ancestors are part of this, right? It's. Uh, I'm part of it in a sense, like because I, until I started unlearning it, you know, it's yeah, it's it's not comfortable, but like we need to learn about this stuff. Um, you've know, already talked a bit about the damage that this does to people of color and, and black people. What what damage does whiteness do to white people? That is, uh, that's a really great question, and I it's really interesting to kind of try and unpack this idea that, that whiteness is bad for white people. But I mean, I think that to break it down really simply, um, dehumanizing other people is bad for your nervous system, (laughs) right? Like that in order to, you have to be very sort of disembodied to, um, engage in that kind of abuse right? And I think that disembodiment and whiteness kind of go hand in hand, honestly. Um, And so in terms of, like in terms of the impact that whiteness has on white people, I think that it, it's like you're saying, it makes people really afraid of other humans just because reasons, you know, um, it makes people really angry. Uh, it makes people really insecure and they are, instead of dealing with those feelings, emotions, fictions, honestly, um, it's like you're blaming somebody else. Right. Mm. But the thing is, again, like when you're having these 
when you're having these like nervous system reactions to like, like we're talking about like people of color or immigrants or people from other countries, um, you know, people fleeing violence that like our countries started. Um, it's like, um, that is that like, that's a, that's a, that's being that angry all the time. Like that's a really serious demand on your nervous system. It also makes you like, there's a lot of things that I want to say here, but it makes like, because you're on edge, because you're living in this sort of like fight or flight state, essentially, when it comes to other individuals, like other people that you pass on the street, um, that also means like you're like you're more likely to be a jerk to your kids, <laughs> you know, like you're more likely to be a, a shitty coworker, um, and like so you end up abusing people around you because of your anger that you think you're directing at like people of color or like people that you consider others. Um, which then like those people, like all their nervous systems get activated when they're around you. And so now you have all of this like kind of built in conflict. Right. Um, and you know, we know that this, we, we know that stress has like an oxidizing effect on on our bodies and like it's again like super super clear like this is it's really bad for people (laughs) to be constantly stressed out and i know that that like i don't mean that in like a preachy way of like stop being stressed right um but more in more in the way of like when you are spending so much of your cognitive and like emotional energy on like hating other people that you think are different or unworthy or what have you. Um, that also has a demand, like that's, that's a demand on your nervous system. That's a demand on your body. That is like actually causing like cell deterioration in you. (laughs) Um, because it's like, it's not good for anybody. Right. And, um, obviously like the impacts are very, very, very different. Right. I'm not trying to say that like, some white dude like getting off of work and like being an asshole to his seven-year-old is the same as like a cop like lynching someone i'm not saying that that's not the comparison i'm making but the fact of the matter is like being that angry being that hateful like that's not that's not good for anybody um and the fact that other people's existence has the ability to like steal your joy or your peace or contentment um, when it, when it doesn't have to, like, it doesn't have, like, that's, that's a decision that you were making <laughs> at the end of the day, right? Like that's a choice that you have made. You have chosen to like, whatever the situation is, wherever like your prejudice and bigotry lie, like you've chosen to give those things power over your nervous system responses. Right. And again, this like, this has detrimental health impacts for people, um, across the board. Uh, you know, something like a a phenomenon that we're seeing in the U S that we've been seeing for the past, I don't know. Um, well, since, since Obama got elected, I'm going to (laughs) say, but there has been like, um, white men in this country have like really kind of taken a downward turn 
um, in terms of like their own health, their own emotional well-being. Um, the rates of white men who die by suicide um, have skyrocketed. Um, and there's just like a really immense amount of like self-hatred uh, that, that white guys experience, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that again is like, that hasn't, that has an impact on like yeah. on you, on your physical body, right. Um, on your mental and emotional well being, but it also has an impact on like your family. It has an impact on your community. It has an impact on the people that you work with. And I, I don't mean like, I don't mean like, Oh, people can't get anything from you. Right. But like you've, you've, when you are in this space, you are you're like manufacturing trauma essentially yeah. that other people have to deal with, um, which then reduces their quality of life, right? So I think that like whiteness is incredibly toxic for white people. Um, I don't think it's not quite as dangerous <laughs> as you know, like racism as an example, but it has this really kind of like toxic sort of calcifying effects on, on white people as well. And I think that sort of the more that you're bought into this narrative of like, well, I'm superior because I was born that way. I was given this position like by God or the universe or, you know, what, whatever justification you're using. Right. Or, or just like, it's just science. I'm more rational. Um, like you were, you're kind of, you're kind of like sitting, you're kind of, like the way that I think about it is like your nervous system is sort of like sitting in this like vat of just like acidic self-hatred and like self-loathing and like it's, that's not good. Like get out, get out of there. Like you don't have to be in there. No one is making you sit there. Um, yeah. So I would say that those are kind of like the major ways that I see whiteness sort of impacting white people in a negative way. And um, it's like, again, it, it's kind of horrifying because it like does not have to be that way at all. Right. Like white guys don't have to be toxic. You know, it's like, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to hate yourself. You don't have to be insecure. Like it's, there's enough for everything. And I think that maybe that's like part, part of the issue is that there's like the scarcity sort of mindset. And it's like, there's more than enough for everybody on the planet, like full stop. Like everybody on this, everybody on earth could have a decent quality of life standard of living. Like that's just, there's enough. Um, but yeah, like I, white, white men realizing like, oh shit, I'm losing my privilege. Um, yeah. I, um, and this is something that, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've actually said this in other episodes of this show that a lot of the, that I see a lot of the anger that I see on white men, in white men, especially conservative white men, is it's a lot of it is unresolved grief in that and that grief might be partly to do with oh um, my privilege is being taken away like I got my entire value from my privilege uh, and now um, I'm getting that taken away so I've now actually got to deal with like like my own lack of my own lack of value in myself, my own insecurities, mm-hmm. my own traumas, my like, instead of getting therapy, they get angry. Right. And, um, and of course, social media doesn't help this either. Like, and I noticed, I know it's cause I'm on Twitter less now. And 
I noticed when I was I was starting to use Mastodon, and I noticed it was so different. And one of the things that I noticed in my brain was, oh, Twitter trains your brain to be addicted to outrage, like mm. as in likes and clicks and all of this kind of thing. And it's like you're looking for the next thing to get outraged about. And it's like it's like a cycle that your brain gets into and you start to think this is normal, but it's not normal. And, of course, because Twitter is so popular, like it can create an outrage culture. I think there's this documentary called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, it's on Netflix, it's brilliant. Uh, I wish I could remember what it was called, but which actually shows you an example of this and how people can be, like, how the algorithm works to almost to radicalize you or like in toxic ways. And that contributes to, to that as well. Like, and people are harmed and it's normally yeah. oppressed people and people of color. Um, and black people, it's that that are harmed the most because mm-hmm. of you know, because of whiteness and the way that culture is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good observation. Actually, I think that like yeah, the impact of the impact of social media. I mean, I think that it's kind you know in a way it's kind of like a tool. Like to some extent, it depends on like how you use it. But there's also another piece of it that's like you don't necessarily have you probably don't ever have complete control over like what's coming through your social media. Right. Cause you can't control other people and you can't control the algorithm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that definitely um, kind of like exacerbates the problem. Like it just, it makes it a lot bigger because yeah, you're constantly being fed this, this like fear narrative, right? Or this narrative of like, if other people have enough, you don't get anything, right? And um, and then because of that, the people who are the people who are like buying into this narrative or who are being you know radicalized by the algorithm, which is like that's a thing that happens. Um, they all find each other, right? Because they all wind up in the same spots. Yeah. And then it, again, it's like this self-reinforcing system of like, if everybody around you is in this toxicity, like it's, it's hard to like even see outside of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so we actually saw this during the pandemic as well, where literally people, anti-vax people were, finding each other on social media and connecting and forming these communities and like, and it just got out of control. Um, and it was, again, it was normally white people. I have to say like, the, yeah, it was mainly, it was, I mean, I'm not saying it was entirely white people, but it looked like it was the vast majority of people that I saw were overwhelmingly more white people. <laughs> like it was, you know, um, and um, yeah, I'm not hating on white people because I'm white, but that's just what I noticed. Um, but um yeah, uh, but it's just it's just crazy how these things happen, isn't it? Like um, mm-hmm. how social media can, and like you say, I think it amplifies everything. Right. It just yeah. blows it up and makes it bigger and causes more harm than it would have done. Um, yeah, so. yeah. Well, I mean, when you when you when you write the algorithm to like try to keep people on your website on your platform for as long as possible, like you show them the things that are going to piss them off, right? Because like if you see a cute video of a dog with like his little word buttons on TikTok, like 
that's not going to piss you off. You're not going to stop and write like some nasty comment. (laughs) You're going to be like, oh, heart, moving on. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, like data is pretty clear that like the algorithms are being written to keep people on the platforms as long as possible. And the thing that the emotion that keeps people online the longest is anger. Yep. Yep. Oh, dear. (laughs) Um, So try to bring this all to like a close, but like I'd normally ask you like, what would your one piece of advice be? But we just like, but obviously everyone's different. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone, everyone is coming at this from a different, a different place, but is there any kind of like one basic thing? Like that everyone can do um, Mm. to like, which doesn't cost anything, which doesn't, you know, which it's just, maybe it's just a change of mindset or whatever Mm -hmm. that people can do to, you know, to kind of stand up against whiteness and systemic racism and, and all of that oppressive systems. Is there something that you would, that you've learned that you would want to pass on? So the thing that I have noticed in the last, and this is really like, this is kind of reorienting like my, the way that like my own lens and like the way that I view whiteness and interact with whiteness, something that, that I have noticed um, over the last couple of years that's becoming clearer and clearer to me is that um, I don't like, I don't want to call it, the antidote, but I think that the opposite of hatred is actually joy. Um, and like that it's kind of sounds weird, but it's really fascinating because like one thing that I've noticed, there's, um, like there's this, like, uh, so there's a, there's a hashtag on social media that's like black boy joy. Right. And, um, it's like, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it also like made me realize several years ago that like the one thing that, (laughs) that seems to make like racist the most upset is seeing people of color experiencing joy, just enjoying life. Like that's it. Like that's worth calling the cops over. Right. It's like, oh, these people are having a picnic in the park or like this dude is like, bird watching and um like it's just it's antithetical like joy in so many ways is like antithetical to to whiteness to hatred um because when you are sincerely like invested in when you are sincerely invested in like creating a world where more people can experience joy like that is that is inherently the opposite of the world that whiteness has created. And I think that um for me like that's really the lens that I have that I've been using and you know something is <laughs> like something that I've noticed a lot is like I will in the car I will like start laughing randomly like driving along and like people will ask me like oh what are like what are you laughing at like what what's going on? And it's, it's like, whenever I see, whenever I see people having fun, like 
that just brings me so much joy, right? Like seeing kids messing around in front of their school, like after school is over and just like hanging out with their buddies, like that brings me so much joy, right? Like seeing a bunch of like college kids who are like taking a bike ride together, or, like hanging out at the park or like playing music and having a picnic, like just, just, just doing normal things in community and like experiencing that together. Um, and that, that actually brings me to something I have not thought about before, but like, I think that joy is like, joy is most acute in community, right? Like it's most acute when you're with other people, like that's how nervous systems work. And so, um, yeah, I would say that like, if I were going to give, if I were going to give people like everybody, like a piece of advice, I suppose, um, yeah, like try to like try to add a lens of like l- like looking look for joy like in your own life in your own experience and like start seeing and appreciating it when other people are experiencing joy whatever that looks like, right? Um because like authoritarianism like it hates that. Whiteness hates that. Hatred hates that. And I think that like I think there might be something really powerful there if we're we choose to like invest in that as an outcome for, you know, our communities and ourselves. Mm. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Ah, um, That's wonderful. That's a lovely way to end. Um, where can people find your work and connect with you? Um, I am still on Twitter a little bit at Tori glass. Um, Sometimes, sometimes on Instagram at Tori Glass, um, I have a free anti-racism um, like mini workbook on my website, which is just toriglass.com. And um, let's see, like, where else am I? I, th- I mean, yeah, if you want to like know what I'm up to, like, if you're one of those places, you'll find out. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Um, I highly recommend um, if you can, if, if you're financially able to, uh, to support white homework as well, it's, uh, um, you know, you can, the donations can go really, really low to really, really high depending on your income. So that's, um, um, if you can't afford it, that's also fine. Um, So um, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really great to talk to you. Um, Tori so um, thank you yeah thank you so much for having me this is a great conversation I appreciate it yeah it was Um, and thanks for listening everybody